I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. Very often when you live in the city, you haven't got a clue as to what it takes to grow food and get it to that local market, the big box grocery store, or the farmer's market. There are so many skills that a small-scale farmer must have and so many challenges that that farmer must face. Now, some of those I've come to experience uh, firsthand as a smaller-scale a farmer here in the upper Midwest. But I think back again then to some of the challenges that uh, I became familiar with when I was working in the nonprofit field. Mm -hmm. I was working uh, for a foundation that was very, very devoted and dedicated and put its money to helping people get out of poverty long term. Mm -hmm. It was the Northwest Area Foundation. I tip my hat to them because trying to understand what programs will actually have a long-lasting effect? Right. Teach the man to fish yes, rather than giving him a fish. Right. Yep. is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And now, here with our guest this morning, Jim French, who has been a, a Kansas rancher and farmer for over two decades and who is now working for Oxfam America as their senior advocacy advisor for agriculture. He, too, has combined these um, elements and experiences in ag, in policy, and taking a look at the challenges of local versus large farming on a both national and international um, geography. We've got him with us to help us kind of even think about this, these, these issues and challenges even further. Good morning, Jim French. How are you? I'm fine, Sylvia. Thanks so much. Uh, yes, we're enjoying, I'm a little bit further south than you, kind of enjoying a break in this uh, uh, winter weather. So it's, uh, although I must say, it's been rather a roller coaster. I don't know how it's been in Wisconsin, but uh, the weather has been a bit erratic over the last few months. You know, we've seen some of that too. We had some unbelievably deep cold at the beginning, and then really unexpected bops into the 30s mm-hmm. <clears throat> and almost 40. Um, yeah, so it's it's been a little bit of a of a up and down situation here as well. But I'm glad we're on the upside of it <laughs> at the moment, <laughs> at least for this morning. At least for this morning, Jim. You know, it, your your background is fascinating, and what you do right now, I think, is kind of eye opening for many of the farmers and food lovers who listen to Deep Roots Radio from all over our country. Could you first explain what is Oxfam America and what does it do? Yes, Oxfam actually is a is a member of a of a confederacy of Oxfams uh, under the umbrella of Oxfam International, and uh, there are uh, around fourteen uh, different Oxfams around the world, but all of them are are united under a kind of single uh, goal, and that is to 
basically create and help work with others to create long-term solutions to poverty, to global poverty and hunger. Uh, and I think just to get to the, to the meat of the matter, 80% of the world's poorest people live in rural areas. They rely upon agriculture for their livelihoods. So concentrating on agriculture, agricultural development, especially at local levels, is, is a very tangible and real way of creating those long-term solutions uh, that, that actually help people help themselves and make communities, uh, rural communities, stronger. Now, you've been working with them, uh, with Oxfam, since 2005. <clears throat> what, kinds, what countries have you visited? Where have you kind of seen things firsthand? Well, firsthand, I've, I've, I've been mostly in, in, in West Africa. So I've traveled in, in uh, Senegal, Mali, Burkina Faso, Faso uh, Tunisia. Uh, I, but I have for kind of provided that human face of agriculture so that I've worked to facilitate farmers coming into the United States to tell their story, uh, to basically help educate all of us about how our lives are connected around agriculture and production. And I've had farmers from, from Vietnam, from Haiti, uh, from Colombia, from, from Peru, uh, from, from Nigeria, Uganda, and so many places around the world I've, I've really been exposed to uh, not only the, the innovations going on in smallholder agriculture, uh, but the challenges that people face in many places around the world. Jim, you mentioned something, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned something that um, I think we need to be aware of right off the bat. And that is when you work, when Oxfam works with, um, you call them smallholders in, uh, in countries around the world, it isn't only because people need our technical assistance. Many of these farmers are developing innovations and are very good farmers on their own, aren't they? Uh, that's correct. And, and so many of the, the challenges they face uh, are, are really challenges that sometimes uh, they have n uh, very little control over or uh, actually could, could, could use some help. For example, weather is one of those. Uh, in, in the world today, uh, most of the developing nations uh, are facing, in fact, many places in, South, in, in uh, Saharan Africa, and Southeast Asia are facing really challenges from rising water levels, from erratic weather, and yet those communities themselves are probably uh, have very little, make very little in the way of, of emissions. Uh, the emissions that are that really are contributing to this erratic weather come from primarily in the developed world. Uh, in, 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 in likewise, the investments that are, that uh, allow roads to uh, to be built to upkeep on infrastructure. Those sorts of things that are vital, as you know, for smallholders, whether they're here or abroad, to get a product to market, to take it to the uh, to the local farmers market, or get it to a place where people uh, where people would have need of, of those. Those types of services require investments, uh, larger investments by 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 government, and also kind of stable uh, stable governments and and uh, lack of conflict. So. Those are things that somehow with that, what can we look at will unleash the power and the innovation and the intelligence of, of smallholder farmers. Those are the kinds of things that, in large part, can make a huge difference. You mentioned a couple of things, uh, Jim, just now, kind of the challenges that are facing smallholders in the countries you've visited. One is the weather, how uh, they have so little uh, ability to influence, oh, the emissions of big 
companies or other more developed countries. And you talked about the kind of investments that might be needed to build the infrastructure they need so that they can get their product from their field to the market. So are these kinds of the things that you work on when you go overseas? Are you working on taking a look at policy? Do you talk to then policy makers? Yes, absolutely. So, so give, I'll give you um, uh, just a couple of examples. Uh, I worked with uh, a, a women's cooperative in, in Haiti uh, that, that uh, it was in the Poule district, which is a little bit of more of the upland uh, area uh, of, of the country. So when the, the earthquake hit several years ago, there was just a huge uh, you know, inpouring of, of, of aid into that area. Almost all of that aid went into Port-au-Prince, into the large urban area. Uh, and at the same time, a lot of that aid was in the form of rice. And at the same time, many people were fleeing that area, going up into the countryside, oftentimes and, and then consuming uh, food resources, which were, were somewhat meager. And, and at the same time, the inpouring of rice totally destroyed the market for uh, uh, Haitian uh, rice farmers. So what, what do we work with in, in that and this women's cooperative is, is working with, with women that have the skills, uh, basically, on on maybe developing and coming, allowing them to come together to work on business plans, to work on increasing shelf life, uh, working with the government, increasing those roads, so that 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 actually those investments and Haiti has tremendous agricultural potential. Uh, by changing those policies, working on those types of investments, you can you can make a, a real difference. A second example is from Ethiopia, uh, and, and again we we've been working there with. How do you, you develop a system of extension learning, bringing farmers together with other farmers and allowing farmers to set the agenda for, the, for, for research and for the needs that they have in terms of both in terms of education and, uh, and, and technique improvement and being able to network with other farmers? Those are the, those are the types of investments uh, that can make a, a really a, a true difference, and they work from the ground up. And, and as you say, being able to empower farmers, and just a, just a brief mention here, we focus so much on women. Uh, around the world, women are, are by far the major, majority of the world's producers, uh, and, and, and working on empowering women and skills around agriculture and management is, is truly one of the most effective and tangible ways of, of making a first step to, to allowing greater food security. Let me ask you this. In the years that you've been working on getting good resources into areas that need them, has it been a struggle um, because, you know, the U.S. was used to giving aid in one certain way? You know, let's, let's give them all of rice, let's give them all corn, let's give them all of our surplus wheat. And the aid really needs to come in another fashion so that it doesn't destroy the local market? Absolutely, and, and that's, that's a great point. I think uh, we can talk about working in, in other countries, but oftentimes the very policies that we enact here have a dramatic impact and have consequences. U.S. food aid right now is the way it goes. 50% of, of the American dollar, or 52 cents out of every dollar, is that when we ship food, goes to the shipping industry. Or it goes to the traders that basically when we buy those commodities. And we feel like a better way to do food aid is if you have a disaster, 
maybe within a few hundred miles. There may be smallholder farmers growing food uh, that could serve that need and could be bought locally, support their markets, and you could actually uh, uh, allow that to, that, that to uh, go more directly, more quickly, and oftentimes in a better nutritional form to what's needed. So those just as an example right there, and that's a policy that Oxfam America is working to reform within the United States to make our food aid more direct in the form of cash vouchers, uh, and, and, and that would be a way that actually supports local economies, makes the world more stable, and, and actually does a better job of feeding hungry people. Jim, is it, is it a struggle to get that kind of reform accomplished? You know, it is a, a struggle, and oftentimes it's simply because of kind of the, uh, again, I would say the, the sense that people want to know that they have a tangible uh, kind of contribution in, in feeding people. And also, as I say, that oftentimes farmers feel like, well, it's our, you know, that's like the food we grow, it actually is going to help people. Uh, and, and yet, it's, I think it's just a misunderstanding. In fact, right now, only about 1% of the export market is goes into food aid. So shifting into to cash vouchers is, really would have almost a negligible effect on, on U.S. farm markets. And it's also a very small part of our shipping industry, and yet our shippers uh, are one of the largest blockers of, of this kind of reform. But mm. let me also tell Sylvia that, that we are the only developed nation in the world now that still insists on shipping grain from and commodities all the way from our country to places of, 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 of where they were having, having um, a disaster or a, a famine. My goodness, so we're behind the, uh, behind the curve here. Very much behind the curve. Canada and, and uh, Europe and all the other developed nations have long since gone to cash vouchers as their primary way of delivering food aid. Let's, let's just switch for a second uh, because it gets to a, another thought. Maybe it's a misperception that we hold as a paradigm here in the United States that also plays into the policies that we have, let's say, for disaster aid, as well as just the agricultural policy in the United States, period, which is the notion that there isn't enough food grown in the world to feed the people of the world. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's, it's simply false. We, we grow every day on this, this planet uh, probably uh, around 3,000 calories, or close to 3,000 calories, is, is in food production uh, per day. And, uh, and that 3,000 calories per person for that 7 billion uh, on, on the earth. And, and so we produce more calories per day uh, than, than, than what would actually be needed to, to, feed, uh, to, to feed people. Now, let's go the other direction, though. How many of those calories are in the form that people can eat? Well, 40% of our U.S. corn crop goes into, into ethanol. Uh, other parts, other calories go into uh, uh, making blue jeans, those sorts of things. So, so, so there is one aspect of the, of the problem. Other aspect is, is that the largest amount of consumption around the world uh, is, uh, occurs not where people oftentimes need it. So in the United States, we have a real problem with obesity, early onset cardiovascular disease, uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, whereas in West Africa, you, you have a real shortage of calories and people li- trying to live and feed themselves on less than, 
oftentimes less than a dollar twenty-five a day. So productivity is is not the primary problem. The primary problem is consumption patterns, distribution patterns, and oftentimes just the ability to empower people to be a part of the food system and to produce. Okay, so this leads me to a another question. We'll take the consumption pattern and leave that alone because that's that's a we can do a three days on that one. Um, <laughs> but it's the the challenge of distribution. Um, one of the things that many people have heard over the last year or two has been about the amount of food wasted in getting it from field to table. And then, my goodness, there's a huge percentage that's lost in refrigeration and storage of different kinds. So when you, Jim, take a look at the challenges that you've seen um, in, in your work in, in West Africa and the, the work that you've done in the United States, what, what is your thinking around that distribution challenge? Well, I, I think you're, you're certainly right. I think it's, it's, in terms of distribution, uh, it's, it's a matter of, of producing according to the dictates of the land. So there are certain places where certain crops should be grown and other crops shouldn't be grown. And, when, and in the United States, that's oftentimes influenced by our, our subsidy policy and our safety nets that we have there so that we oftentimes have crops using tremendous amounts of water resources, not because uh, those resources are necessarily uh, available or should be used, but because the reward system is is there. Um, The same thing, I think, happens around the world. And, and again, you brought up a really good point in terms of, 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 of food waste. Simply by being able to invest in the types of storage structures, and I talked about that women's cooperative in Haiti, how they're really concentrating on, on ways in which taking their abundant food, fruit and vegetable production that may occur in certain times of the year uh, to be able to uh, allow that shelf life to increase through possibly through the use of, of making jams or jellies or fruit leathers through basically of, of curing meats and allowing those within when you don't have refrigeration and electricity available, what are the techniques that can stretch that out, mm. extend, extend that growing season, make a product that can be transported uh, and, and not spoil. So those, those again, those are the kinds of, of, of barriers that are not basically barriers of production. They're, bar- they're barriers that are created by the kind of the ways that we learn how to decrease waste to make food available in areas where they, it, it, it uh, uh, sometimes is challenging to be able to also to d- distribute it by, imp- by investing in simply things having a graded road uh, so that, that uh, a bicycle could travel or, or a, uh, uh, you, you, would, you, could, you could go to a city in, in uh, quicker fashion. That is a, that's a matter of distribution that also addresses waste. Jim, you know, the things that you're saying bring up a couple of, of uh, ideas. One is the notion of, of regional independence. Um, you know, if a certain region has a bit of infrastructure that allows for product to move around, uh, if you've got a combination of old and new techniques to be able to process and store your foods, you're going to have to depend less, I think, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, on outside, you know, large companies or um, perhaps technologies that require a great deal of um, fuel to keep them going, like deep freezes. Um, Correct. 
The other thing is that it sounds like you were referring to uh, processing techniques and maybe some storage approaches that are maybe harken back to some older uh, skills that we used to have and now need to be revived so that we can, in fact, store our foods without immediately thinking of either canning or freezing. Is that the case? I think that's an oftentimes the case. And I think here's, here's the, 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 uh, the approach. You, you work with people where, where they're at and the capabilities they have. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we don't usually get into the argument about versus big versus little and that, but what we oftentimes, what we do get into is, is words like what's appropriate, what's compatible with the situation. So let's say you have communities that don't have electricity, communities that don't have uh, access to uh, modern plumbing, uh, and, and, and yet what kind of tools do and, and what kind of ways in which the innovation and knowledge that, that exists there can be harnessed to, to uh, um, you know, extend the, the growing, extend the growing season to address things like food waste, to allow for markets to, uh, to uh, occur and access to uh, markets to there. So you start where people are at, mm-hmm. and you also ask them, you know, what are the barriers, what you need, uh, in order to uh, you know make make your life more food secure, your communities more viable and resilient. So you start where people are at, and you look at the technologies that are appropriate to that. You know, I think Africa. When, if you travel in Africa, you'll see kind of vast graveyards of of U.S. technology or modern technology that have been shipped with all the best intentions. But if you have a Ford 8-in tractor that was shipped over there and, and yet there's not any accessible fuel, there's no uh, ability in, in, in terms of, of the types of skills to repair that tractor, you, uh, you, you sometimes just see uh, these, these machines sitting around the countryside that are no longer viable, but they probably were shipped with good intention. Mm-hmm. That's not the way to start. All right. Jim, let's see if we can flip a little bit. Um, You've seen all of these things, obviously, in, in, in your extensive travels and experiences overseas. And you yourself, however, was a, were a um, Kansas farmer for a yes. quarter century. When you, see, when you t- think about the things that you've seen and done, and you take a look back into the United States, what are some of those common issues that you think smallholders here face as well? No, I will say one. I guess I, I, I feel flattered that you said two decades ago. I'm really a, a little. I'm a little bit have a little more snow on the top of my head. And, and, uh, <laughs> we we started and we came back to the farm in '79. Uh, I actually started w- working uh, uh, with with my father back in 1966. Uh, when about the time I turned to be, I was a teenager. So it's been quite a journey. But I want to say the one thing that probably is 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 the biggest change. Is that is that wellspring of, of, of knowledge that was passed through the generations, um, and I, I remember once we uh, had a, a, a young man that uh, his father came to me and said, "Do you think he could come out and help on the farm and be a you know?" A, and it was when my children had already gone to college, and he said, "I don't want him to go work in the mall. I just think he'd be good." He says, "I'll even pay you." I said, "Oh no," but he came out and and you know we. We would, we would. Uh, it just always kind of struck me. A lot of the things that I took for granted for kind of knowledge in terms of how do you get on a tractor, how do you, you know, you you make a 
make a corner with a pulling a disc or how do you close a close a barbed wire gate and you do it in a way you know so all those kinds of things and so those kind of just uh, skills uh, that seem very rudimentary we had to start from scratch uh, on that and 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 it turned and so I think that kind of base of knowledge that that was passed down generation to generation in a basically an agricultural rural society you know once that's gone it, it takes a lot of investment and effort to rebuild that. And mm. so around the world, I think that idea of where the majority of the world's people still live in rural areas, they have that knowledge base, learning to value that, learning to be able to pass that on, learning to be, and, and having the ability to have countries, in, and that includes the United States, uh, become committed again that the importance of, of, of preserving rural culture, rural life, and providing an area where those kind of basic skills, which sometimes are just are also cultural skills, how you get along with your neighbor, how you uh, share labor, how you, you do those sorts of things, that those are important, and, and, and you can't, it's really difficult to buy it back once it's gone. Mm. You know, Jim, I can't believe we've come to the end of our time together here. So let me ask you this. If people want to find out more about the kind of work that Oxfam America does, uh, how would they go about that? I think the best way is, is just to go to www.oxfamamerica.org. And especially this campaign that I work on, the GROW campaign, which is very much focused upon agriculture uh, and our food system. And if they would just put a slash and put grow, or if they're searching on uh, Google, just put Oxfam America, G-R-O-W, grow, they can learn much more about our work in agriculture, uh, rural work, and our uh, campaign to make a food system serve people uh, both here and abroad. Well, thank you, Jim. As we wrap up, Dave, anything that you want to add? I, I don't know if this is oversimplification, but one of the things that I thought of as I was listening to you, Jim, is that a lot of times the uh, solutions are there It's already. It's just a matter of uh, bringing somebody in with a little perspective to help people put things together. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a perfect way of putting it that we can work as a catalyst to kind of unleash those powers of creativity uh, that, that really oftentimes are there. We just need to be able to provide a way to open that pathway. All right. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Have a great weekend. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.